Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Pelin Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Chijong, a culture veteran critic. And this week we're discussing Blink Empire, a reality TV show about crazy rich Asians, I guess. And uh, The White Tiger, a film that is also about money and all that shit, but maybe like the total opposite in tone and theme. Uh, So it should be a good show. Yeah. Uh, How have you been this week, babes? Uh, I've been okay. Just counting down, looking at the vaccine news every single day, waiting for... (laughs) waiting for our turn i know it's been very heartening seeing everybody's parents and grandparents getting theirs hopefully we'll be sometime in the summer yeah in the meantime we'll just be here you know waiting yeah but yes vaccines great stuff yes i've been feeling a little bit lighter this week what why why so (laughs) why so Um, i honestly wasn't expecting to feel so relieved but I, I guess I symbolically needed it yeah, for my for my mental health because I, I am feeling a little bit lighter or at least like a little bit more stable in terms of like daily fuckery, you know? Amazing how much an entirely new administration will, will do that for you. Yeah, it's been it's been nice. It's been nice just getting back to regular war criminal news and not <laughs> the absolutely batshit war criminal news so war criminals aside or maybe on topic what did you watch this week Pelin? very good segue <laughs> um so this week i watched bling empire on netflix and i want to give a shout out to one of our listeners username char on twitter they suggested to us that we should get into a little bit of reality tv absolutely thank you for the suggestion it is not beneath us at all we trust we me we love reality we love hate reality we TV, I guess. love it i love the suggestion so we have heard your cries so i started watching bling empire Uh, earlier on in the week and it came onto my radar because I guess I was missing Selling Sunset and needed another like Netflix highly produced reality Mm -hmm. TV show Uh, in terms of what it's about it is set in LA and it's about people that reside in LA they are all Asian and they all almost all very rich and it's about their lives basically I wish I could give you more than that this is not the typical reality TV show where you know, like like we're selling Sunset, they all work together. These are all apparently people that like know each other and run in the same rich people mm-hmm. circles, rich Asian people circles. So um, the way that the show is, if you've watched any kind of show like this, you'll understand it immediately. But it's in the similar vein of like previous reality TV shows where they have harvested something that's already popular and have turned it into a re- reality TV show. So, you know, what Laguna Beach was to the OC... And then what the Real Housewives franchise was to Desperate Housewives, back when Desperate Housewives was really big. This is a common business model for reality TV, where it's like very cheap to kind of take an idea that's already really, really popular with scripted TV and then show the real people in this world that became so popular. So as Jenny mentioned at the top of the podcast, the thing that is the relation to this is Crazy Rich Asians, which is the book that became the really popular film about really rich Singaporean Chinese billionaires, I guess, that live in Singapore. So what do you have also watched this, Jenny? Yeah, I am also a sucker for some slickly produced, like glossy Netflix reality TV. And of course, 
being Asian myself, I was especially kind of intrigued by this. I mean, I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of the Crazy Rich Asians like book or movie at all by any means. And I think this is kind of under the same category. It didn't really do it for me, and I think several different ways. It's just like I don't know. Here's like like one of my top line complaints like Crazy Rich Asians the thing that you want to see is like the the bling and lifestyle of these disgustingly wealthy like Asian people abroad in Singapore, their jets and Hong Kong and Macau. Here this show is distinctly I wouldn't even call it like Asian American. It just felt fucking white as hell or like it, there wasn't really anything that distinguished it from any other kind of reality TV out there, culturally, or really yeah. anything, beside a few, like, oh, parties, some, like, you know, colors and themes that people liked for parties and stuff. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you in that I was never really into the Crazy Rich Asians book, never read it, didn't care to read it, but then when the film came out, the film is fun to watch, don't get me wrong, it's a good, like, rom-com, I guess, but I didn't buy into the hype. Because I think it's uh, that whole debate about like, why is this important for representation for Asian people when not that many people can relate to this level of wealth? And I guess like, what does it mean for, does that mean that this is for a white audience and is the validation through the money and the wealth? And like, is that what this is trying to say? And like, Bling Empire kind of gave me a lot of that Mm -hmm. in that it felt distinctly like a show for white people to see how these people live. Mm -hmm. The reason why I say that is because every time culture was brought up, like cultural norms were were brought up, it just felt really stupid. Yeah. Um, Oh, I noticed that. And like how some of them actually say like the words, you know, this is how Asian culture is. And if you know anyone who's like, that's not how... I mean, the thing that is like special or I guess like significant about quote unquote Asian or Asian American culture is that is not really a thing because yeah. it's like an amalgamation of dozens and dozens of different ethnicities yeah. and like cultural identities. Yeah. So there's not, I mean, Asian culture or Asian American culture, what would you even consider that to be? Like, like right. boba and <laughs> fucking a Korean barbecue and karaoke and that shit. Is that what these people are talking about when they say, yeah, this is an or is not part of Asian culture. Yeah, it's ignorant. How, what do you mean? Like, this is Asian culture? You're talking about an entire fucking continent. What are you talking about? I don't understand how you can reduce it to that. You yeah. Know? And I, I think they tried to play up, you know, maybe they, they could see they're lacking some deeper aspect of culture. They, like, really played up yeah. a lot of elements of, like, the Buddhism and yeah. believing in reincarnation and these ceremonies and stuff. Yeah. But... It was interesting when I was watching those elements, I was thinking like, you know, you couldn't really convince me this isn't just part of like LA culture also. Like you could find, you know, throw a stone and find a dozen white Los Angeles residents who also consider themselves Buddhists and also like hire these mediums to help them reach their dead mothers. Yeah, Yeah. and shamans and stuff. And it's like one, it maybe like points to the sort of like mysticism that like gets assigned mm-hmm. to these traditions that may or may not authentically get imported from Asia, like yeah. like Asian countries. I don't know. It, it's very much diluted and like this isn't actually showing any, yeah. you know, like cultural depth if that was your intention, producers. Yeah, exactly. And I don't even know if the producers are Asian. No, themselves. I'm not sure. I think 
actually, interestingly, I was like looking through some comments on this. And I think someone pointed out like some of the cast members are actually producers. Like someone said, like oh. Christine is a producer. Um, one of the cast members, Christine, who is this? Uh, she's like a, a Chinese oh, man. Chinese she's like woman. a socialite. Yeah. yeah, socialite who's married to a, a plastic surgeon who's descended from the Song. Song Dynasty, <laughs> Royal Empire. I don't know. Yeah, sure, um, mate. <laughs> yeah, right. But and I'm a Romanov. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, it was interesting. So I, I, there is at least a little bit of like cast producer overlap, which is well, that explains a lot. Then yeah, right. Tell me yeah. more. The whole thing feels contrived. Mm. I am absolutely certain that none of these people are actually friends in real life. I'm pretty sure. Like, maybe two people are actually friends in real life. And I feel like everyone else, even if they know each other, I don't think they're close friends. I did not feel convinced about their intimacy. And I felt the way that the season ended, especially the outro of the season finale, where they were really pushing the friendship theme. Like, you know that this is not real. So you're having to, ha- like, you're having to have to force this messaging across to the viewers. There was that. And it's also um, because they're not real friends none of the drama felt real either to the point where like it wasn't even that it felt real it just felt like it wasn't even drama so there were there were certain plot points that that i say plot points there are certain things that happen throughout the season that don't make any sense there's like a whole necklace drama so christine and this other woman shay she's like this half russian half japanese she's the descendant of a war like like a weapons she's a weapons dealer yeah like the the she's the daughter of a weapons dealer and um i guess she was a shut-in and then is now a party woman party auntie i guess 60 years old if you can believe it yeah i actually can her posture (laughs) made her posture is a problem dude like Mm. i the more i watched her the more i just found myself like my neck just going lower down into my shoulders like i was just like i have to stop watching this woman because my posture is getting worse than it already is and i can't afford it um so they they these two are meant to be like bitchy or shady towards each other and it's funny at times but yeah i I just didn't believe it like i just didn't feel like this was real so that's happening and then there's a character there's there's this woman called kim lee she's meant to be like the calvin harris of asia i've never heard of her have you heard of her i've never heard but then again don't listen to house music so who the fuck right (laughs) not the demographic no but apparently she's really famous in asia as a dj she is trying to find her long lost father and then the the two other characters kane and kevin who are meant to be her friends go all the way out to south carolina to find her long lost father it was good in the way that it played out but i just didn't understand why they were there doing that for her it just felt like they just met each other so it it didn't make any sense and if they were and if they were like actual friends and you know this is something that kimley actually didn't know that they were gonna do yeah like when she found out I would have been fucking pissed. Yeah, I would have been serious. People like, yeah, took away this this choice for me, yeah. this like opportunity for me, and essentially like, yeah, totally like trampled over any sense of autonomy she had over this fucked up situation yeah. in which he's like hired a PI to find her biological dad. Yeah. So like the reaction on that end sort of like rang false. Also, where she just like not angry, not emotional, no sort of reaction to the news that these supposedly very good friends of hers went in and did this 
kind of shady shit. Exactly, yeah. And then on top of on top of that, there's a standard relationship drama between this woman called Kelly and her boyfriend Andrew, who I then later found out was the Red Power Ranger in the TV series. Did you know mm-hmm. this? I think they mentioned it at one point on the show. Oh, see, that's how checked out I was. I just <laughs> wasn't even listening to that either. Anyway, so it's the usual like this happens a lot in reality TV. I guess the most famous is Heidi and Spencer. As in two people that have a very toxic relationship and everybody around them is like sick of their fucking shit and they think mm. that the whole world is against them when it's actually because the guy sucks and the girl is, is I guess, too wrapped up or whatever it might be to leave him. Um, so Kelly and Andrew should not be together. He is clearly has anger issues and they're both in therapy and then he weaponizes all the therapy language against her because, <laughs> of course, he fucking does. That... I felt so much rage in, when I was watching that. It's just, mm-hmm. it makes me sad. I, I, I don't care for it. And like, it ends in a way that doesn't make me want to watch season two if it ever comes out, you know, because it's obviously going to be a continuance of that plot line. Yeah, it's a bit of a mess, to be honest. Like, I, I was pretty astounded by how bad it was because it could have been so much better if they just found, I guess, a group of people that were more compelling or at least had something in common with regards to they are all truly friends or or they're all truly colleagues because i think that's when it really works like Mm -hmm. good tv scripted unscripted it's always when it's set in a workplace like workplace dramas are always the best but if they're not then you should all be people that know each other and have history with one another because a reveal of any historical friction between these people is always juicy and it just didn't have either one of these things and the only thing the only very tenuous connection that they had was that they're all rich somehow and you couldn't i couldn't tell that they were rich because none of them have a fucking drop of taste between them (laughs) no drip zero drip whatsoever like in this entire thing no one can dress they talk about haute couture giving me none of that like it's giving me early 2000s fuck shit like it's too polished like whatever they're doing there's yeah. no style i i did want more like like even flashier more obnoxious displays of wealth like if, if you're gonna watch yeah. a show that is essentially reality crazy rich asians like yeah. give, give give us some more of that fucking crazy rich part yeah i completely agree I, and it's not even the i know that they're rich but crazy rich i didn't get that <laughs> Because even though they talk about shopping and even though they have these insane events that are clearly catered down to the nines and whatever, but if we're talking just purely real estate, like what these people houses look like, I didn't get it. Yeah, the house stuff was like disappointing, especially because that is like always my favorite part of, you know, selling Sunset, like that there is a whole lot of really fucking beautiful and outrageously expensive homes in there yeah Um, that's like my favorite part of you know any part of aspect of showing wealth in a reality tv setting so unfortunately we don't really get that in here no we don't but yeah do you have a favorite character at least (laughs) i guess i kind of like some aspects of um anna anna shay the Mm -hmm. 60 year old yeah what about you um, I think my favorite is Kane. Oh, he's funny. He's great. Kane and his cheek fillers are <laughs> my, the the best. I think he's got like the most tact out of all of them, and I think he's probably oh, the most for sure. He's definitely uh, after Anna. I think he's probably the most intelligent out of all of them too. Um, he like knows what he's doing. Yeah. He's like involved in every storyline where he's like essentially commentator or support. But he doesn't have to reveal a single bit about himself personally. That's like, he is like, 
guy. Like, this is... Very is smart. Yeah, very smart. Do you have a least favorite? Do you have someone that you absolutely despise? I mean, the I couldn't stand the Kelly Andrew storyline. And also, like, the way Kevin, like, so artificially kept, like, going after Kelly, which that was definitely, like, scripted or... Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. These are just, like, even to the point of, like, favorites, least favorites, they, they're just, like, a fairly bland cast of yeah. characters. I agree. But, I, I mean, I know that, like, a lot of people are watching it as, like, smooth brain TV, and I think this is actually... Yeah. I, I, I understand why it's bad. Yeah. It's bad even for trash TV, which is a problem because then where is the bar you know how much lower can it go and i think standards yeah we still need to have standards with our rubbish you know Uh, i want to give a shout out to the (laughs) the private investigator that oh (laughs) that uh what's her name hires kim kim lee hires there's too many names with k's in this fucking show um yeah, the private detective that Kim Lee hires, uh, the, the realest character. He looks like he's straight from like a hard-boiled detective <laughs> thing. I love LA for this. That he's he's a real one. He tells her that the, the best case scenario is that... <laughs> oh, it's so sad. The best case scenario is that her dad turns up dead. And so... <laughs> anyway. His delivery of that is just perfect. It's so wow. good. But like, it's funny because when he said it, I was like... Yeah, like, you're right. You're so right. He, yeah, he, like, really laid down some logic. Yeah, because, I mean, who know? I don't know anyone. Like, I have friends that reached out to their dads after, like, not speaking to them. And every time it's a fucking disappointment. Because guess what? Men are trash all the way up until all the previous <laughs> generations. Would you believe it? But, yeah, that that was an accidentally funny moment. But shout out to Kim Lee and her black scent. <laughs> <laughs> and her Kylie Her Kylie face. Her Kylie too, face. Oh, my God. She straight up just went into the surgeon and was like, just give me this fucking bitch. Which a lot of people do, I guess, now. That's really the standard. That's the Instagram face, buddy. Um, I will say that for a show set in LA about Asians, not one single N-word was uttered, which (laughs) congratulations for managing not to. Yeah. So I hope the next reality TV show from Netflix is is better than this one. In the meantime, I'll just be waiting for Selling Sunset season four. All right, so that was Bling Empire. Uh, what did you watch this week, Jenny? Uh, I watched a movie that I think is kind of interesting and is sort of like a pairing with Bling Empire. It's called The White Tiger. Uh, so it's a film that just came out on Netflix this weekend. It's by writer and director Raman Barani, and it's an adaptation of a 2008 novel by Arvind Adiga. And this novel won the Man Booker Prize, which is very prestigious. And kind of a fun fact, that book was dedicated to this writer-director Barani, the, the adaptation, who is a close friend of the author's. Ah. Yeah, so you got friends looking out for each other. Yeah, friendship, a tourship going on. Love it. So in terms of a brief overview plot, this film is about the protagonist, um, Balram, played by a kind of like relative newcomer, Adarsh Gaurav. Um, So Balram is this now successful entrepreneur who basically tells a story of how he got to where he is. And he started out as this poor tea shop worker in like a rural village in India and kind of like the early aughts. He worked his way up to becoming a driver for a rich and powerful man's son. And then he finally, I guess sort of the the, the climax of this whole thing is he sees his employers for who they are when they, and this is not really a spoiler because you see it in about the first scene. Yeah, it's the cold open. Yeah, they 
drunkenly hit someone with her car. And so, like, this and everything that unfolds after this, he kind of, like, has an epiphany, really, like, sees things for what they are, and he decides to learn what it takes to game the corrupt system and mm. get ahead in it. Yeah. So it, I, I don't know what I was expecting, but yeah, definitely exceeded whatever expectations I had. Completely agree. And it, I didn't know what to expect because like you, I have not read the book. Yeah. And now I really want to. Yeah. I watched it upon your recommendation and it really took me aback. I, mm. I really didn't expect it to take the tone that it did. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the feel and the themes that it covered. I, I guess not the themes that it covered, but the, the approach that it took towards the themes. Yeah. I guess the tonality of it is really interesting, especially because you see the gradual and then kind of like jarring shift in, in tone. Like mm. it starts out, you know, fairly, I guess, a bit more lighthearted or more like, I'm going to go out and make my fortune kind of thing. Yeah. And then it gets steadily darker and darker and darker, which is kind of reflective of where the the protagonist is at mm-hmm. um like mentally mm-hmm. emotionally psychologically as well so this this film is kind of in and the book as well it's in conversation with slumdog millionaire which is i think for a lot of audiences in the u.s in the west one of the the last big like india setting movies that people have probably seen mm-hmm. in the last like couple of decades mm-hmm. so if you're not familiar with slumdog millionaire that one uses a similar sort of narration device as The White Tiger, where it's a protagonist sort of recounting his life from origins all the way to the present. But that's like a decidedly different film in that it's kind of like a exoticizing fantasy or fairy tale. Like bad stuff happens, but it's all in the service of this kind of rags to riches story. Yes. Yeah. That is like very sort of white gazy as well. Yes. And I don't, I wouldn't say this film is like, I mean, I think it's also still meant for an international audience, Mm -hmm. but it's very much, you know, poking at the Slumdog Millionaire stuff where, like, there's even an explicit line early on in the movie um, where the narrator and the protagonist, he says, like, don't think for a second there's a million rupee game show you can win to get out of, Mm -hmm. um, which is pointing directly at Slumdog Millionaire, Mm -hmm. in which essentially that main character won this game show and made his fortune and lived happily ever after. This is kind of like showing reality is dark and messed up and to be able to get out of these you know the lower echelons of society and and class and caste it's gonna take a lot more than just like this plucky nerve and courage and luck and um you know the ability to win a game show yeah i think my favorite thing about it especially with the narration it reminded me a lot of scorsese movies Mm. with regards to the darkness with regards to someone's descent i also really loved how much visual symbolism was done in the film and like how physical some of the i I know that it's been said that it's a little bit too on the nose but i actually didn't mind it just because it felt so visceral and i think that's yeah the way that the character feels is also so visceral and there's so much fury and anger that to see that exemplified through visual means it makes complete sense and i I think it really worked it didn't really feel too hard-hitting or too over the top for me and i think the you know the thought that it's maybe a little bit over the top i think it that's like intentional like this is a little bit satirical also in the same way that other sort of like class centered mm. films in recent memory have been. Um, yeah. So another one that I'm thinking of, which I'm sure it'll get more comparisons to is, is Parasite. Yeah. Of course, everyone's favorite Oscar winner. 
Um, yeah. So that, like, not just like the the sort of you know protagonist driver comparisons, but also just the same themes of class and caste and just like this unbridgeable disparity. Yeah, you know, there's a really compelling analogy that the the main character Balram makes in this, what he keeps referring back to and back to, which is. Um, saying like you know the have-nots are in this rooster coop they they're seeing their brethren get slaughtered and like in terms of sheer numbers you know maybe there's enough that these chickens and roosters could get away from these cages but they just like they're not gonna do anything they're not gonna try to break out or overthrow anything they're just like too busy watching to see who's gonna get like to the chopping block next yeah so that's kind of where he sees you know fellow members of lower classes and castes stuck in India at that time. And I think it also does a really good job in how it portrays uh, the two characters who are his employers uh, principally, which is like the the rich man's son, Ashok, who's Mm -hmm. played by Rajkumar Rao, and his wife, Pinky, played by familiar face, Priyanka Chopra Jonas. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Who's also uh, an executive producer on this, I believe. Yeah, she's an EP. With Ava Um, DuVernay. Oh, I didn't know Ava wasn't. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, they're like, they like to think of themselves as kind of like more liberal mm. and modern. Like they, they grew up in part in the US, so they spent a while in the US. And so when they come back, they're like looking down at these old traditions and they're like, oh, we need to treat the servants better. But, you know, underneath this like sort of facade of friendliness or modernity, you know, they're just as... I don't know, kind of like assholes in a certain sense. Yeah, they're, they still demean in their own way. Yeah, they demean. Maybe they're they're nice when they feel like it, but also they're like dripping with this like casual, really gross kind of condescension, and they're really hypocritical. Like yeah. it's yeah, it kind of gets at I think both any picture of the ruling class, but also kind of like self imagined like liberals as well. I thought that was done really really well, just yeah. like in terms of like the many different faces of them and how they treat their servants essentially yeah your point about the extremity of the visuals i think is absolutely correct with regards to the extremity of the difference in class so like many countries in this world and that's what i mean i think this is very specific to india and i think i'm sure any one of our indian listeners that maybe has a little bit more context about this can speak to it but like i'm turkish my family's turkish every time i go back to turkey the difference in most of the country versus like the upper middle class upper class yeah it's miles apart like it's i mean i know that it's the case even here in america i know it's the case in like the uk where i'm from but the gaping distance between yeah. between these two classes, it, 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 it a lot of the world is like this. And um, yeah, I felt the same like looking at it. And my mom was watching when I was watching it too, and mm-hmm. she's like, "This is just like China." And she said, "Like looking at the scenes of like Delhi and stuff." Yeah, I completely agree with the two younger generation where they they feel like they're more understanding. But obviously, as the film showcases, when push comes to shove they will throw the working class under the bus immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of what it comes down to, is is this film and the narrator and the protagonist is, understands very quickly that this is how the world works and they just have to figure out a way to function in this world without getting chewed out, which is in its own way very radical. Right. And it's not an idealistic film by any chance, no, in case no. it wasn't obvious. Mm-mm. Like, it'll stoke kind of, like, your rage and class resentment and everything. Mm-hmm. But there's also this greater 
question of like, you know, in this cruel system of haves and have nots, who do you have to turn yourself into to become a have? And like, what sort of like moral degradation or whatever will you commit yourself to? Because that is just like how the world works at the moment. And seeing especially like his relationship with his his boss, this uh, character Ashok, and where it's like ultimately he's servile and obedient, um, but also like really resentful and hateful and, you know, just the, the toggling between those different modes as he's figuring out his own feelings. And then seeing that shift eventually to like straight up, okay, I know what I have to do. And it's like not pretty. Yeah. Um, it goes from like desiring to be loved and treated well by the bosses into the next stage desiring to become them himself. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. And of course, like ideally it's like, well, the biggest galaxy brain is like, how do you not just seek to join them, but how do you, you know, seek to overturn the system? But as far as like reality goes, you know, that's a lot to ask for any one single poor person who has just like clawed their way up their entire life and seen their family claw their way up as well. Yeah. My favorite thing about this is the way that it tackles that psychological journey whether it's resentment for for his own family which i thought was very real actually that was really interesting too and the way that that ended up and i think that's important because (laughs) well because i think like i guess you could call him an anti-hero for it but i found it really complicated and 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 it, it kind of showcases that complexity in a really understandable way where it's like you know, is this a collective? Is this individual? Like, what is it that I have to do for myself? And what does that mean for my suppose for the people that are supposedly my family that supposedly care about me? That was very complicated. But like my the thing that will never the scene that will never leave me is when he is kind of walking around this like scrapyard of some kind. And then he comes across a guy with his pants down. Um, mm-hmm. And then he just sits in front of him and pulls his pants down as well. And, you know, with a lot of films and TV about class, like it, the whole promise of upwards tra- trajectory that a lot of the poorer characters have, or the, the way that they want it so much for themselves and don't have it. But that scene really stuck with me because it just showcased how just to kind of, whether it's like a, a form of punishment or whether it's like a reminder of who you are, it's haunting, but at the same time, it's so fucking real, man. I think that's, like, the biggest thing about this is it's honest with whatever it is that it's trying to say. You know, whether it's the tenderness that he might have for his master, questioning what that brings out of himself and, like, his resentment for his family or for the people that he works for. All of these things, like, it's all kind of swirling around, which is true. Mm-hmm. That's how it is. Like, it's it's all of these things all at once. But, yeah, what did you think or how did you feel when it ended? Oh, it doesn't leave, you know, a happy feeling or like a feeling of catharsis at all. Mm -mm. It is, I mean, I'm sorry to keep comparing it to to Parasite, but it leaves me with a similar feeling. Yeah. First of all, like astonishment at like, wow, this film. Um, Yeah. But also like the world is fucking dark and this is (laughs) um, deeply reflective of that in like a really sharp, cynical way. Um, It leaves you feeling heavy kind of. Yeah. Yeah, it's. Uh, I really enjoyed this film, man. I really think that it's... Um, I guess I was watching it and thinking how universal it was, and I hope that people that thought Parasite was really universal agree that White Tiger is also universal and don't, like, other it because it's in, it's set in India or whatever. Like, it. this is... You can apply this to 
basically every single country in the world, including especially America, actually. Mm-hmm. So it's um, yeah, I I really enjoyed it. Yeah, everyone everyone who listens, check out this film. I mean, everyone has Netflix. Right? Yeah, it's it's there. <laughs> Go watch it. It's gonna be worth your time. Yeah. So this week for Culture Notes, we want to talk about Bernie. Uncle Bernie. Uh, Uncle Bernie. That's Bernie Sanders, if you (laughs) didn't get that already. Um, I hope you did. Um, So, of course, last week was the inauguration, as we mentioned. And probably the biggest takeaway, aside from, you know, just like, oh, the change of the guard, this is actually a new presidency, whatever, whatever. But the (laughs) biggest thing people were talking about, Bernie, he was memed to the max yeah like fucking done fucking yeah jesus this is one of the biggest ones biggest and biggest turnarounds i've seen yeah so in case you're not aware essentially he he did his normal bernie thing he wore his regular coat he wore his regular old vermont made mittens he just sat in his chair minded his business and it was fucking cold he looked a little cold but he's an old guy he's he's 79 he's it's it's no mean feat to be out there in like 30 degree weather but this was just like, of course, like a wild contrast with the kind of pageantry of inauguration as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, he was just doing his thing and this got blown up into the biggest meme where people <laughs> took this image of him sitting in the cold in his coat and mittens and they photoshopped him to hell in like everything and anything, like a- anything you can imagine. There's yeah. been a photoshop of him there. Yeah, we'll maybe show you the, our personal favorites, but it's been done to death, man. I'm like really sick of it. Like it, it stopped being funny, like the day after people started me these it. things have like an ac- expiration date like really within like 24 hours i would say after yeah, that they, it's kind of like just clock out yeah and then of course predictably where it moves <laughs> to after the meme initial meme like expiration is the takes which is yeah. my least favorite part of yeah. anything the whole the whole well everything. actually this is bad gang decided to yeah. descend upon the already fucking expired meme yeah culture. which is wild when again you have to remember this is a photo of you know an elderly senator sitting in the cold you know minding his own business yep. with coat and mints on yeah um and yet somehow it got turned into accusations of sexism racism Every, everything bad you can think of somehow it was all of his fault <laughs> i guess am i getting that right so should i should i read the top three yeah i guess i guess read a few of them to give you really illustrate what all we're right. talking about um it's not just hyperbole so um alexandra the brave became very brave and said that i'll admit the burning memes are funny but his openly grumpy disposition during a very historic moment for women, and particularly women of color, speaks volumes to me. Okay, as a woman of color, you're chatting shit. Yeah. And then, like, another one is <laughs> my personal favorite uh, by Amelia Hoover Green. She says, Ice cold feminist take. Ooh. <laughs> I love Bernie. Really, I do. But, sir, emotional labor is not beneath you. Not feeling it? Fucking pretend for one minute. Like, most women do every minute. And once again, this is accompanied by a photo of Bernie just just sitting there in the cold, um, not bothering anyone. Okay, so there's a tweet that we're going to link that says that feminism is in its flop era. And I absolutely agree. I've had enough. We've had enough feminism. I think we need to take a break for the next 10 years, regroup, and then decide what it is that we want to talk about. <laughs> what, what, are, what are your thoughts on this, Jenny? Yeah, I mean... 
I think we have to point out like one of the common factors is really uh, white feminism or capital W white capital F feminism. Yeah. Like for example, the Alexandra the Brave thing. First of all, that is a white woman who is talking about women of color. Yeah. Quote unquote women of color. Like mind your business. Mind your fucking business. (laughs) It's just like unfathomable to me that this is like the first thing people think of. First of all, like things like this, that's like not how you use emotional labor in this context. Mm -hmm. Emotional labor has been like completely stripped of its original meaning and misapplied to a whole number of things. Well, it's like a, it's like a classic, like, don't be mean to me. (laughs) Feminism, which I'm seeing a lot on Twitter, especially because Twitter is like, the place for people to go and make up things in their head so that they can be mad about it. And this is like a classic case of that, where it's just like trying to posit some kind of intellectual understanding of whatever it is, like the symbolicism of all of this. And it's just like, there is none. There is no symbolicism in this. Other than your friendly neighborhood socialist uncle does not care about the pageantry of inauguration day for a centrist democratic party that he has had it up to here with. And it's fine, because <laughs> so have we all. Um, yeah, stop. Think before you tweet, please. That's always true, but especially in this case. Well, now that we have maybe alienated seventy yeah. percent, hopefully not that many. Thirty. Oh my god, I'd be. Oh god, I hope. Uh, yeah. I hope, oh god. <laughs> um, <laughs> you can feel free to email us at criticismisdead at gmail We are accepting your regular feedback, suggestions for what to watch. Just like casual greetings, or I guess light, gentle yelling. If you really feel like that, please don't yell at us, man. Please don't yell at us that hard. Um, Listen, but yeah, you can. <laughs> I'm baby. Don't yell at me. <laughs> don't be mean. Um, but yeah, feel free to email us um, again if you're not gonna. If you're like not gonna be mean to us, you can email us. Yeah. Um, you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram. Criticism is dead. Uh, subscribe to our Substack for extended show notes. Um, we're going to try to include some of these tweets and like other links that we find around the internet for you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess that's it. Please rate review on Apple Podcasts. Only if you're going to do a good rating and review. Shout out to the latest review that we got. Love that. Love you, hun. Thank you, babes. Thank you so much to everyone who's been doing that. Yeah, I guess that's it. Thanks for listening. Yeah, see you next week. Bye. Bye. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelin Keskin Liu and Jenny Ji Zhang. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Liu.